0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, October 24th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. In Rand Paul's speech yesterday outlining the broad strokes of his own vision for American foreign policy, he worked to separate himself, not just from the neoconservatives in his own party, but also noted war enthusiast Hillary Clinton. Chris Preble, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, discusses the senator from Kentucky's idea. Several things jump out at me in this speech. One is uh, Rand Paul refers a lot to Libya here
1: mm-hmm. and
0: very few Republicans since 2011 have really done that.
1: Right. They refer to it in the, the attack on the, on the uh, consulate in Benghazi, of course. That's, that's a frequent – uh, you know, line in Republican speeches. But of course, it was the first time that we talked about Benghazi that got us into the war in Libya in the first place. That is the threat that Muammar Gaddafi's government supposedly posed to the city of Benghazi, where the, the rebel movement, one of the rebel strongholds. Um, and it's true. Uh, of course, uh, Rand Paul was very critical of the the decision to go to war in Libya, he was very critical at the time of the rationale for why we went to war in Libya. And and in this speech, he really he really hammers the point. One of the points he makes is that the the wars are authorized or should be by the American people, by the representatives in Congress, not by the UN Security Council. Um, and and I'm sure it's a line that will be popular among. Um, uh, Republican audiences, at least, and probably broader than that. Uh, but it's also it's
0: also a fair point, a valid point. Now, uh, he also makes reference here to uh, the Weinberger Doctrine, which mm-hmm. is more better known as a Weinberger-Powell Doctrine today, which is clear support from the public for our various foreign adventures. And he ties congressional support and support for the public into the same thing, again, referring back to Libya.
1: That's right. I mean, I think it it is – one of the things that stands out to me in the speech is who he chooses to, to cite or invoke in this speech. Obviously, there's Ronald Reagan, but there's also some interesting names that you don't normally see. He mentions Caspar Weinberger. Caspar Weinberger, of course, with Colin Powell, who at the time, Colin Powell was Weinberger's uh, Chief Military Assistant when Weinberger was Secretary of Defense and then later when Powell himself was in a position to craft these things. We, we now know the Weinberger-Powell Doctrine, a set of rules, one of which is support of the American people. Another is... A clearly defined military mission. Uh, That's part of the Weinberger Doctrine. That's basically also what Senator Paul uh, invoked in the speech. He points, for example, to the war in Afghanistan, which has been going on now for uh, 12, 13 years. And, um, uh, you know, it's not entirely clear what exactly we were even trying to accomplish or trying to do. And that's another, you know, that also violates one of the core Weinberger-Powell Doctrine
0: principles. So uh, if I understand correctly, Rand Paul is in this uh, speech, in this sort of clarification of of what he thinks broadly about our foreign uh, military adventures to separate himself, not just from other Republicans who may run for president, but also the leading Democratic candidate quite possibly, Hillary Clinton.
1: Uh, That's right. I mean, uh, at the time when she was secretary of state, Hillary Clinton was one of the leading advocates for intervention in Libya. She was one of the leading advocates for the surge in Afghanistan. Uh, and I think that a number of people who have commented on the debate inside of the Obama administration surrounding the Afghan surge have raised a lot of very serious questions about what exactly were we trying to accomplish? Why? Why did we believe that uh, forty or fifty thousand additional troops would, would would accomplish that mission? Um, and I think that those, especially those who were party to those conversations, who had access to. Uh, the – this information and net, did not ask the obvious questions. Um, it appears the president did from time to time. But at the end of the day, he ultimately went along with with Secretary Clinton in, in particular and also Bob Gates and a few others um, in approving the surge even though uh, th- there were very real doubts about whether or not it would accomplish
0: the mission. Uh Rand Paul here says – A president who recognizes the constitutional limitations of power is not weakened but actually empowered by the public debate that comes with a declaration of war. I support a strategy of airstrikes against ISIS. Our air power must be used to rebalance the tactical situation in favor of the Kurds and Iraqis and to defend uh, Americans and our assets in the region.
1: Right. I mean, I think it, it would be better, of course, if we had had uh, a, an actual debate about this in Congress, but Congress was too busy um, <laughs> convening and then and then leaving again immediately to campaign. But it is true that the American people, the polls clearly show this, there is support for airstrikes against ISIS, in, in especially in Iraq, uh, somewhat less so in Syria, but there is not public support for boots on the ground and so I think he can say correctly, Senator Paul can say that this mission that we're currently conducting does have broad public support but a broader mission that is supported by again some of the people who are likely to challenge him uh, if he chooses to run uh, those people who are calling for boots on the ground, their mission a much broader mission uh, does not currently have the support of the American people and of course it hasn't been authorized by Congress or or even so much as debated inside of Congress
0: But to set up that uh essentially a two-tier test, part of the Weinberger Doctrine, a clear authorization from Congress right. and support from the public, right. you have a, a presentation of a Republican vision of foreign policy that is strikingly different from what we've had since uh, Bill Clinton was in the White House.
1: That's right. I mean, you're right Republicans did object to some of the uh, wars that or not you know if not wars, at least military interventions that President Clinton uh, embarked on. Um, even challenging them up to the Supreme Court in, in one famous case. Um, and so but but more recently, uh, a lot of Republicans were supportive of uh, going into Libya. A lot of Republicans were supportive of the war of going into Syria over a year ago at a time when the American people were overwhelmingly were overwhelmingly opposed to that. Uh, so there this is not a particularly partisan issue. You can find people on both sides, both Republicans and Democrats who agree with Senator Paul and you will find others who disagree just as strongly who believe that the president of the United States should be able to wage war essentially whenever he wants to, wherever he wants to, and that Congress's sole obligation is to fund those operations or, if they wish, to, to the, the, the argument being that they have the power of the purse to, to withhold uh, those resources. But as a practical matter, of course, we know that does not happen because once troops are committed into the field, Congress will not vote to cut, them, cut off funds to those troops.
0: There is a moment in one of the early presidential debates for uh, the Republican side years ago where Ron Paul talked about blowback and uh, Rudy Giuliani uh, sort of famously tried to smack down Ron Paul claiming, I think, something to the effect of, that's not a thing. I don't know what that is. Right. Uh, which, uh, of course, in retrospect, seems just uh, laughably absurd that you right. would have America's gov- America's mayor uh, making such sort of a, a ham-fisted comment. Now, but Rand Paul is pretty clear to say this blowback is a real problem. It's right. something we need to think about. Right. and requires some foresight to do. That's right. I
1: mean, I I do think that these passages in the speech, they jumped out at me a little bit because I wasn't necessarily expecting him to go there. I don't know that he had to go there. In other words, he could have avoided this discussion entirely and and people wouldn't have have noted its absence. And yet he talks about the resentment that is engendered by, for example, drone strikes. He talks about the resentment that comes from our providing aid to governments like hosting Mubarak's in Egypt, and that the anger uh, that when it does boil over at these regimes is not directed uh, only at the at the regime, but also at the United States that supported it for so many years. It's a violation of our principles, uh, and and not surprisingly, it does uh, engender some some uh, hostility and blowback. Um, I think this is one of the issues that's going to come up. Uh, again and again, and I think that crafting a message that accurately conveys uh, this fact that U.S. military intervention abroad does uh, stir anger at the United States and that that anger can boil over in, into violence or terrorism. That is not a justification for terrorism. To uh, to explain is not to excuse. And I also think there are other passages in the speech that make that point very clearly, that we will use force when our uh, security is threatened and that is appropriate, but we cannot ignore the fact that that those uses of force will have uh, uh, unintended uh, and and negative consequences. So we just need to be honest with ourselves uh, that there is a downside to these these military operations.
0: Chris Preble is Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Learn more about a restrained constitutional foreign policy at our website, cato.org.